If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with us to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, as you are turning to 2 Timothy chapter 1, let me just catch you up to speed if you haven't been here. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing the last letter that we have as he is sitting in Roman imprisonment. This is his last Roman imprisonment, <clears throat> not the same one when he wrote Philippians, for instance. And uh, he is perhaps in something called the Mamertine prison, at least that's possible, which is uh, someone has called it uh, a grave for the living uh, underground in Rome, and he is awaiting his certain death sentence under Nero. And as he waits, he writes this last inspired letter that he would ever write to his protege, his disciple, Timothy, a younger uh, pastor. Uh, again, Timothy, it's hard to guess exactly, but he may have been all, you know, early 30s at this point when 2 Timothy is written, so, so close to my own age. And uh, Paul is writing this last letter to him. And as we read 2 Timothy, we get to see the things that Paul is most passionate about right before he is going to depart to be with Christ. And so, the emphasis that you're going to hear in this letter is going to tell us a lot about what really matters in life. And the, the prominent themes that we'll see again and again are faithfulness to the gospel and to discipleship in the midst of a persecution and suffering world. Uh, I didn't, that wording wasn't correct on my part, but you know what I meant. In the midst of a world of suffering and persecution, uh, he is going to be faithful to the calling to guard this good deposit of the gospel and to give it to the next generation. And uh, you can just feel the emotion and intensity as you read this letter. And I, you may have already read it this past week, but if you haven't, I'd, I'd encourage you just to, on your own time to just read through it. It is a brief letter, and just to read through it even several times over the next few weeks and allow Paul's message here and the Holy Spirit's message to just sort of saturate over your heart and mind and to have really a shaping effect uh, on you. Before we pray, I think I may have said this last week, I don't know, but I heard somebody say this, and I thought this was so true. Second Timothy, at first glance, can feel simple. You read through it quick in one sitting, kind of think you've got it. And I'll just tell you that I think it's true that when you go back and slow down and really start looking at the verses and how they connect and the logical flow, and what is the therefore in this verse pointing back to? Is it the phrase right before that, or is it pointing back to the verse before? Like, it really gets challenging. And so, it is worth the mental exertion to slow down and to try to look at the logical flow and progression of thought as you move forward. We are always in danger Always feel, I always feel like I'm, it sounds like I'm making fun of verse of the day apps. I'm not making fun of verse of the day apps. But we kind of have a verse of a day, kind of verse of the day culture, and I'm not against that. But what we tend to do is we, we tend to think of the Bible as a bunch of verses, like a, a collection of nice sayings, almost like the whole Bible is Proverbs. And I love the book of Proverbs, but the whole Bible is not the book of Proverbs. And 2 Timothy is a letter. It was a letter written from beginning to end to an, to an audience and to, a, to, a, to Timothy, and sometimes we can chop the Bible up into these tiny little fragments that we don't often think of it as a logical progression of thought, a flow of thought that goes from the beginning to the end of any book of the Bible. And so, it's wonderful to slow down and look at one phrase or one verse and really study it, but we never want to lose sight of the, of the forest for the trees. We, we always want to also step back and read the letter in its larger context. Even reading a whole book of the Bible in one or two sittings can be extremely useful to, to see how it sits in its larger context. Uh, Greg, can you pray for us and then we'll jump in? Yeah, let's pray, guys. God, thank you so much again that we can be here together as a church family and study your word. Lord, what a gift you've given us in the scriptures. Uh, Lord, 66 books, and we are examining one uh, of those 66. And Lord, what a, what a treasure trove of riches we have uh, in Second Timothy. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would illuminate our hearts, God, that we would better see what is in your word, uh, better understand it, better be able to embrace it and put it into practice in our lives. Lord, even as we're dealing with faithfulness to the gospel and, and suffering and, and persecution in this world, help us, Lord, to, to be equipped to be faithful and to uh, face uh, hard times and difficult times. Lord, even as we see how Paul and Timothy dealt with that. And God, especially tonight, just again, give us, um, give us understanding, give us wisdom. Lord, help us up here on the platform to, as Paul will later say, accurately handle the word of truth so that we would have no need to be ashamed. And Lord, may what we say be pleasing to you and uh, prove to be not only just intellectually beneficial, Lord, but practically and spiritually beneficial for all of us. And so, God, we commit our lives to you in these few moments. May your Holy Spirit be at work, um, Lord, to draw us ever closer to you and to reveal Christ more clearly. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I, 
I want to have the privilege here, I want to read the whole of the first chapter, even last week's passage, just so we can hear this all in its context. And so, this is God's Word, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus." So, would, would one of you guys like to give us a quick summary of some of what we discussed last week as we move into verses 12 and following? I'll give it a shot, um, at least a little bit. Uh, so, you know, we read and looked through uh, verses 1 up through about verse 11. We might have started into verse 12 just a little. Uh, but verses 1 through 11, uh, Paul obviously introduces himself like he does in, in every letter that he writes um, and talks about, you know, he is an apostle you know, by God's will, according to the promise of the life that's in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul was called by Christ to be an apostle, to preach the gospel, a uh, gospel that, that promises life to those who believe. Um, and then Paul goes into this uh, encouraging Timothy, uh, remembering, you know, Timothy uh, had tears at some point because of hard times, because of suffering, maybe because he was not wanting Paul to leave. But Paul is, is reassuring Timothy. He's encouraging Timothy um, you know, I long to see you, he says, that I may be filled with joy. And he, he, he goes to encourage Timothy by first reminding Timothy of the faith, the, the legacy of faith that Timothy has in his own family, his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, um, drawing attention to that. He then says, Timothy, that real faith that I saw in them is what I see in you. Um, and it's good to be reminded of that um, as we talked about. And then he encourages Timothy to rekindle uh, his spiritual gift, which is probably teaching the gospel and teaching the scriptures of some sort. Uh, we focused on the fact that if we're not careful, our spiritual giftings, whatever they may be, they can weaken, they can start to grow cold. And it's something we have to constantly work at uh, to, to keep hot uh, if for, for use in the church and the service of God's people. Um, we don't need to let those things um, weaken. Um, and then he goes into how God gave us this spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, um, leading to verse 8, don't be ashamed. You know, if we truly know Christ, we should not be ashamed of him. We should not be ashamed, as Paul says, of the testimony about our Lord, the gospel itself, and those who preach the gospel, you know, or of me, his prisoner. Uh, but suffering is something we should expect. Uh, but here's the hope underneath all of it. It says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Again, not because of our works, and so Paul never anywhere teaches that we are saved by what we do, um, even just a little bit. 
Not that God does 99%, we do 1%. That's not what Paul is saying when he says, not according to works. He's exempting everything we could do. Everything we could do um, is ruled out. And here's the reason why God saved us. His own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. And again, before times eternal, God set his love on us. God set his grace on us before he created anything. You try to get into the inner workings of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, planning salvation and what that's going to look like. You know, that, that's beyond us in terms of our capacity to truly understand. But God planned to save us. He purposed to save us. He purposed to show grace to sinful creatures. Um, and through Christ and through faith, we have experienced that. Jesus in real history died and rose from the dead, bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. Again, it's a, the, we, we encounter this life-giving message of forgiveness of sins and salvation through a, a message spoken in words. That's where we encounter Jesus. That's where we meet him. Um, and then Paul, speaking of that gospel, says, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And that Paul's focus in life since he was saved was to make Christ known. Oh, that's good. And that's one of the reasons you'll hear that phrase when Paul says, as preached in my gospel. Some people might say, that sounds kind of, you know, my gospel. What do you mean my gospel, Paul? Well, he's already twice said, I'm an apostle of Christ. Verse 1, I'm an apostle of Christ. Verse 11, an apostle. And so, Paul's not being arrogant. He's being actually humble and committed to the truth. Christ gave him, by divine special revelation, the inerrant message of the gospel. And so, when Paul says, I'm preaching my gospel, he means literally the gospel Jesus personally gave to me on the road to Damascus. I'm preaching my gospel. And so, Paul's gospel as an appointed chosen apostle of Christ is the gold standard of anything that claims to be the gospel. Uh, Galatians 1, if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. And he repeats himself, as I said before, and now I say again, anyone who preaches to you a gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven, Joseph Smith, even if it's an angel from heaven, Moroni, uh, even if it's an angel from heaven named Moroni, don't listen to them. Uh, as R.C. Sproul said, grab him by his, his, um, his uh, heavenly pants and throw him out the door. <laughs> if, if that happens, uh, don't, don't listen to it. Because why? It is Paul's gospel given by Christ that is the gold standard of what is the gospel. If anyone preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus Paul preached, it's not the true Jesus. If anyone preaches a way of salvation other than Paul's way of salvation given by Jesus, it's not the true way of salvation. So, Paul's not being arrogant. He's simply submitting to what Christ has appointed him to be. Christ chose him as a called one, a chosen one, a sent one, an apostle for this very, for this very purpose. Well, and also going along with Paul's calling, we go into verse 12. I mean, from the very beginning, Jesus told Paul, you're going to suffer a lot for me. Um, because what did he say, Ananias, you know, go do this, and I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Um, and every time Paul talks about that, I think he references the fact that he was called to suffer. Um, and, you know, you go to, I think it's Acts 20, when he's leaving the church at Ephesus, um, you know, and he's talking about, you know, look, the Holy Spirit has showed me, no matter where I go, it's going to be suffering, it's going to be trials. Um, but what is Paul's joy? It's preaching the gospel no matter what, no matter where. Um, but suffering goes along with preaching Christ. Now, it's especially true for Paul, but it's also true for all of us in one way or another. Now, we might not experience the same kind of suffering that Paul experienced. I mean, he was going all over the Roman Empire. Uh, he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was, um, uh, those are at least some of the things. Um, he went without food. He went without water. I mean, he, he, several places he relates the things that he went through. But he knew that, that that was part of what he went through. And you and I might not go through that to the same degree. But we have to be ready to suffer for Christ, meaning the snide comment from a coworker or family members who, who keep a distance from us because we're crazy about Jesus and that kind of stuff. Like when we profess Jesus, again, not just, yes, we have to have faith and we have to believe, but that has to issue forth and actually talking about Jesus. And it's Paul is suffering, not because he believes in Jesus, but because, I think I said this last week, but because he keeps preaching Jesus. He never stops talking about Jesus. And when we do that, suffering will come. Yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking about verse 12 is uh, he's filled with faith. Like uh, I'll read verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed for I know 
whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I mean, here he is in, in this hole in the ground, in this dungeon, essentially, and yet he's, he totally trusts God. He's filled with faith. I mean, there's so many things, thinking with that backdrop of where he is, and just it's moving to think about all these things that we talked about last week. Like He's about to face execution, and yet he's thinking about the promise of life. He's other-centered. He's thinking about Timothy. He's praying constantly for Timothy. He's writing his letter to Timothy, like he cares about Timothy, like his last will and testament. And here he is about to face death, and he's filled with faith. He has strong faith in God. I mean, just inspiring, to, to, just his faith and trust right there. But now I'll just read 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He's talking about the gospel, essentially. I think he's, he's saying, guard this gospel, Timothy. And one pastor said, this is the same gospel that had changed the apostle Paul. Like Paul hated Christ. He hated Christians. And then on the road to Damascus, he's changed by the power of the gospel. And then Timothy was changed by the gospel. And now we are changed by the gospel. So this gospel is precious and we need to watch over it with great care uh, that's been entrusted to us, but it is the gospel that has changed us. So we should want to be very careful and, and watch over it with great care. So the, the, the picture going on is, is kind of this. So Paul has received the gospel, calls it his gospel from Jesus directly. And now Paul has this, he's been entrusted with the good deposit. Now, if that language sounds strange, you know, the, you, the literal language there is entrusted with the good deposit. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So here's the idea. The Lord Jesus has entrusted the gospel, this deposit. He's entrusted the gospel to Paul. And of course, the whole time, don't forget, it's Jesus' grace that's enabling Paul to do what he's going to be doing. It's not that Jesus gives it to Paul and goes, Paul, good luck. I hope you do well with the gospel. No, Jesus gives him grace to do what he needs to do. But the Lord Jesus entrusts Paul with the gospel. Paul has now given the gospel to Timothy, and therefore Timothy has been entrusted with the gospel. So you, you, you receive the gospel, you get the gospel from someone, it may have been your parents, it may have been a youth pastor, it may have been a coach at school. Uh, it may have been a Sunday school teacher who first entrusted the gospel with you. Uh, it may have been a, someone you were listening to on the radio. Uh, it, it, who knows? It may have been a podcast you were listening to, but the gospel was, was heard by you, by, from someone else. They entrusted you with the gospel. And now we have an obligation to respond to that gospel by repenting of sin and believing in Christ's finished work for salvation. And then, then the real battle begins. It doesn't end when we become Christians. The battle begins because now, here, are the, here is what we've got to do. Number one, we've got to guard this gospel. We've been given this gospel, we've got to guard it, which means with suffering around us, will there not be a temptation to tinker with, tamper with the truth of Scripture, to edit what Scripture says, to tweak the emphases of Scripture, to, to minimize something that might be offensive and whatever it may be. We, we, sort of, we sort of move the gospel, we move the Scripture around to where it's least offensive to our culture, and then we, we try to say, do you like this? Do, do you guys accept this edited version of the Bible? And Paul says, no, you've got to guard the gospel, which means don't compromise the gospel, don't change the gospel, don't edit the gospel, don't edit Scripture, don't, don't apologize for God. The, the Bible does not need to be photoshopped to make it look better. Okay, God's Word looks exactly as God intends it to look, and if we try to Photoshop and manipulate it to make it look different than it is to be uh, uh, fitting into the cultural sensibilities of the moment, Paul says we will be losing the gospel. We'll be not guarding it. We'll be forfeiting it. We'll be giving it up. We'll be, we'll be handing it over. We, we will no longer be good guardians of what has been entrusted to us. If someone gives you a, you know, just making this up on the spot, so who knows what's about to happen, but let's say... Let's say that there's a, a famous uh, painter, painter. Okay, where am I going here? Okay, there's, there's a famous artist paint, uh, who makes this painting. They got this one original copy of this incredible painting, and they entrust it to you. Well, I, now I remember. Okay. You, you remember, you know, someone told me about this after, after a sermon one time. They, they'd seen this on Google, uh, on Im Google Images. There was a famous painting of, uh, is it, is it of Jesus maybe, like an early century painting of Jesus, and someone had gone to try to fix it. And they like basically drew a smiley face. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about, Elizabeth? They, they drew like basically like a smiley face over the beautiful painting of, I think it was, was it Jesus? Yeah, it came out looking like a <laughs> <laughs> you got, I don't know the name of it, but you've got to look at this thing. So here's what happened. Someone was genuinely trying to help improve the painting as the, as the paint was starting to fade. So they wanted to improve it. And this person with the artistic abilities of me showed up and they started drawing on this priceless piece of artwork, and before long, it looked like someone had drawn a cartoon over the face of Jesus. Now, here's the point. If we are entrusted with this beautiful piece of artwork, when the artist comes back, they don't want to see what improvements we've made. 
because we can't make improvements on a masterpiece. The, the gospel is a piece of artwork that cannot be improved upon. To improve the gospel is to lose the gospel because you can't make better what the Lord called the good news. And so, we've been entrusted with this piece of artwork, this, this beautiful message of salvation, and if we try to manipulate it or tweak it, before long, we will actually lose it. We, we, we need, our job is not to change it, it is to guard it. To In our society today, it reminds me of the people in Athens, they were always telling and hearing something new. Our culture is obsessed with hearing something new. If you want to write a Christian book that sells copies, you often want to give a new twist or a new spin on something that's never been said before in the history of the church. And as, you know, if it's never been said in the history of the church, it probably doesn't need to be said at all, okay? If no one's ever said this theological point in 2,000 years, it may not be an accurate point. So, what am I saying here? The point is, we need to not make something new and fresh. We need to keep the old, old story and the old, old news uh, alive and well, by keep, we need to keep on teaching and preaching it. The idea that it has to be fresh and new and different is actually to lose uh, the gospel itself. Well, I'll say something I had not noticed before until you were talking, looking at this. In verse 13, it says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Um, just something, a suggestion, something I, you know, I've probably done it without realizing I was doing it, but more intentionally, if you want to, you know, Paul's saying, follow my example, Timothy, and how I guard the gospel how I preach it, but also how I guard it. And so it might be a good exercise as, you, as we go through the book of Acts, as we look at other letters that Paul writes, how is Paul guarding the gospel? Like what, how, in ter- especially in terms of how he speaks and how he writes, how is Paul guarding the gospel? Because that's Timothy's example. Um, follow the pattern of the sound or the healthy words that you have heard from me. Maybe it'd be a fun exercise. You might, might I, don't, I don't know what you'll see in that. I haven't really done that intentionally with that focus before, but that might be a worthwhile endeavor. See how Paul does it. Might be a lot to learn there. Should we keep going? Let me, let me just read 15 to 18 then uh, of chapter 1. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me. And was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So, Mark, you want to maybe say something there, or you want me to start on something? Yeah, you, you can start. Well, these guys at the, at the very beginning, I think somebody said, uh, you don't want to be mentioned in the Bible one time, and this would be the time that you, you get mentioned. They, they, they turned away. Phygelus and Hermogenes, they ran away from Paul when suffering came. Somebody said, uh, if you want to know who your friends are, do something, make a mistake. He said, if you really want to know what your friends are, get in prison for the gospel and watch who, who stands firm there. And these guys take off, which you guys can maybe talk about them more, but I love this guy Onesiphorus. I may not even be pronouncing his name right. In heaven, I'll find out, I guess. But Onesiphorus, this guy is incredible. He, he goes to Rome. We don't know why exactly he went to Rome, and he knows that Paul is there, but he doesn't know where Paul is. So he, 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 it says he searched for me earnestly at the end of 17. He searched for me earnestly. I mean, I picture this guy going around Rome, knocking on doors. Anybody seen the Apostle Paul? Does anybody know where Paul is? And we don't know how long he looked, but he searched earnestly. He's going up and down the streets. Where's Paul? Where's Paul? Where's Paul? Finally, he finds, finds out he's in the maritime prison. And he goes to the maritime prison. He probably brings supplies of some kind. And can you imagine they let him down in this little bitty hole? And you see Paul looks up and sees his friend Onesiphorus. And imagine the joy that must have jolted through Paul. This guy has come and has searched for me earnestly. And he's come all the way here to the prison. He's not ashamed of me. And he refreshed me. He says at the middle of 16, for he often refreshed me. Maybe multiple visits. Certainly it was physically. People think he bought physical supplies, but one of the commentators said, certainly this is spiritual refreshment going on here with Onesiphorus and Paul. And I love the application is, uh, you may, Paul just may seem like, no way we can be like Paul, but Alistair Beck said, we can be like Onesiphorus. Like, this is the kind of guy we can be like. We can be a refresher. Like, we can refresh the hearts of the saints. Like, we should be about the business of, of encouraging others, searching for others, like meeting physical needs, like our church does, but meeting spiritual needs. We should just want to encourage the hearts of the saints, like, just regularly, consistently. We come to a gathering like this, and how can I be an encourager? I think he's an inspiring example. I will say it's not really related to what we're studying, but it's something I find a little hilarious. Um, it's, it's an old, like, kind of preacher thing, but, um, and I'm, I'm not recommending this. It's just a pattern I've noticed um, if you, at least in Southern churches, if you don't know how to pronounce a word in scripture, just say it really loud and with a lot of passion and people will believe you. So if you don't know how to pronounce a name, just say it like you mean it and you're good to go. Um, that is a true sorry. statement. Uh, that is, that is fantastic. 
Um, I heard someone also mention about this guy who I don't know how to pronounce his name, Onesiphorus. Uh, someone said about him, this is real applicable, and I don't know that I like this application. It kind of gets in your face a little bit, but this guy had a convenient excuse to avoid doing a good deed. Paul was not easy to find in Rome. So, he knew he needed to go encourage Paul. He, he, he felt in his conscience, this is the right thing to do. I need to go find Paul and encourage him. And after perhaps a number of days, he had not yet found Paul. If you want to get out of doing something that you really think that you should do in your own conscience, you can often find a convenient excuse to not do it when you know you still should do it, right? And he did not take that excuse. He could have easily said, Paul, I looked for you for three days. And I mean, I was going to, I need to get my job. I'm going to go hungry if I don't find, you know, I, I can't just walk around Rome all day long. I, I looked for you for three days. I couldn't find you, Paul. But you know, best of luck. Here's my postcard and I'll send it, try to find you in jail. No, he doesn't do it. He keeps looking until he finds him. And so, you know, <clears throat> if there is a strong sense of, of, in your conscience of saying, no, there are, there are, there's something I, I must do that is right and good. We, we need to be careful that we don't use convenient excuses to, to get out of doing what the Lord would have us do. Would we want to say, um, based on verse 15 about uh, Phagellus and Hermogenes, that another way you can tell people are turning away from Christ is when they turn away from faithful gospel preachers. Would we want to say that? I mean, because Paul doesn't specifically say here that they turn away from Christ. He says they turned away from me. But who is Paul? Like Mark said, he's appointed by Christ to preach the gospel. If you don't preach the gospel, Paul preached, you're preaching a false gospel. So if you turn away from Paul and the gospel Paul's preaching, you're turning away from Christ. Um, and so, you know, something just to, we, we need to pray for a lot of wisdom in this because we don't want to get like overly nitpicky, but who people associate with and who they reject can sometimes be revealing as to who, where their true allegiance is. Um, and I don't, I don't want to get off on a, on a lot of tangents on that, but I mean, you think of a lot of the social justice issues that we've already dealt with. You know, uh, people have allegiances that, that have come out just through the controversy of that, um, that there's no, like five, six years ago, we say there's no way they would ever do that. But now it's like they're rejecting, you know, some people like they mock folks like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul. Um, I'm trying to, um, Josh Bice, Virgil Walker, Daryl Harrison, brothers who are trying to um, keep the gospel clear and folks want to hold to Christianity while rejecting some of the most faithful preachers of Christianity. And it's like, that doesn't necessarily mean they've departed from Christ, but if somebody continually is pushing away those who are marked by faithfulness, then we might want to start considering they're on a dangerous trajectory at the very least. Because um, again, Paul doesn't say specifically they turned away from Christ, like they turned away from me. And so if someone is having a hard time with a faithful gospel preacher, figure out why that is. Because if they're a faithful gospel preacher, why would you have a hard time with them? Does it make sense? That's helpful. All right, let's move to chapter 2. <clears throat> chapter 2, uh, verse 1. Read the first seven verses here. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So if I can just start this part off. Paul has said, okay, Timothy, I as an apostle was given the gospel. It's my gospel. I now have entrusted it to you, Timothy. And now, Timothy, don't just get the gospel and guard it. That's great. Okay, you've got the gospel and you're guarding the doctrine. You're not letting false doctrine come in. You're not letting the gospel get uh, watered down. Okay, you've got it and you're guarding it. That's great. But does it stop there? No, you've got to not just get the gospel, and you've got to guard the gospel, you've got to give the gospel, right? And so, Paul goes right here. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is going to take Christ's strength. And what you have heard from me, so that's Paul to Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, you, Timothy, are to entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
Reading that verse quickly, you might not notice that there are four generations mentioned in that one verse. Look, look at it. You got Paul to Timothy, what you have heard from me. So, Paul to Timothy, that's two generations. And then Timothy is supposed to take the gospel and entrust it to faithful men. That's the third generation. And then those faithful men are supposed to able, they need to be able to teach others also. That's four generations. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and more faithful men. So, four generations of the gospel in one verse. So, Timothy, get the gospel. You've got it. Okay, you're entrusted with this priceless piece of art, this incredible saving news. Okay, don't just guard the gospel. Also, one of the ways you guard it is by giving it. Because the more people who hear it and know it and believe it, the more people have it. You preserve, so, one of those things, you preserve it by giving it away. This is strange, right? You, you, how do you preserve true doctrine? You teach other people, and then more people have it, and more people believe it, and therefore it is guarded. It is, it is better believed. It is it believed by more and more people, and that is how you safeguard it. That's how you preserve it. If Timothy had it by himself and Timothy dies, the gospel's gone, right? I mean, that's oversimplifying it, but you know what I mean? The way you guard it is by giving it away. And the more people who have it and the more people who trust it and the more people who guard it and give it away themselves, the gospel will just explode across the world, which is what has happened for 2,000 years. And what used to be home base for the gospel was the Middle East, and then it went up to Europe, and then it went across the, the Atlantic Ocean to North America, and now it's moved to South America, and now Southern Africa, and South Korea, and the gospel's just made its way around the whole world. How? By Paul giving it to Timothy, who gave it to faithful men, who give it to faithful men, who give it to faithful, faithful, and it just goes on and on to where you get it into the hands of uh, Luther's and Calvin's and Edward's and Spurgeon's and on and on, Whitfield's, and it, it, it lands down in our laps today. And so, the way we preserve this gospel is by giving it away to, to other people, uh, especially faithful people who will be entrust, trustworthy with it. Yeah, I, I just say this about, I love verse 1. I'll, I'll just read it again. This has been maybe an important verse for me personally, but it says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What a fantastic verse, even just to chew on and soak in. It's not, uh, we're going to pull ourselves up, we're going to grit our teeth, we're going to do all these things. I mean, this is tough. When we go through these seven, these, these three things, the, the soldier, uh, the athlete, the farmer, you can just feel this immense conviction and think, I got to do this, and you can want to go in your own strength. But no, it's by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So grace saves us. I love the Piper thing that he says grace is power, not just pardon in the Christian life. So it, it saves us, but it gives us power. Grace is power to live the Christian life, to go forth in, in Christ's strength. And so I think an application would be we need to be regularly praying for, for Christ's enabling grace, for his strength going forth. Certainly here is discipleship setting, but the principle applies, I think, across the board. We need his enabling grace. We need to lean into his enabling grace. I think uh, John Newton said, we should pray earnestly for a deep sense of your own insufficiency. I mean, we're so prone to be self-sufficient, thinking, I can do this. Well, we need to have our insufficiency before us, so then we will be pushed into pray for God's enabling grace, Christ's enabling grace, to go forth in His strength. And Packer has this very helpful thing. He says, you, you pray for Christ's enabling grace, and then you go forth expecting to be helped, so then God will supply that grace in that moment. And when he does help you, he said, give thanks to him as he helps you. And you just kind of go along. That's the Christian life. We, we pray for grace. He strengthens us. We give thanks to him. The other thing on, on this grace that's in Christ Jesus is just praying for it. But for me, it's, we need to, the, the praise I've used, which I think is from Sinclair Ferguson, we need to swim into the sea of God's grace, meaning we need, I need to regularly marinate on the grace of God to me in Christ. It is, there is power, power in that for me to dwell on the fact that, that Christ has died in my place, just soaking in the gospel. I mean, there's just power. When you come and back to the gospel truth and you soak again and again, you, you're reminded of the blood of Jesus, and it is it's powerful. It's just like a stick of dynamite in the soul, and it propels you out into faithfulness. So I just think we need a regular practice of getting the grace of God in Christ before us for power to live the Christian life. We just we got to get Christ before us regularly. What would you say, Scott, that the, the truth of Scripture goes through our mind to our heart? People don't want, we don't, want to, don't bypass the mind. That, that would be not good. And we don't want to also ignore the heart. The truth of God's Word goes through our mind. It is logical and reasonable, and it goes down through our mind into our heart, and it stirs our affections. And we can't leave either of those things out. Right theology, rightly understood, comes through our mind, and it stirs our heart by God's grace. And having our heart stirred, I mean, you know this, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you know that you get dry. You, you, your heart needs to be revived. You go a few days without the conscious, you know, experience of the Lord's presence, and you just start getting irritable, and you start getting complaining and whining and all this stuff, right? We, 
same things I get on to my kids for doing, I then do all the time, right? That's what starts happening. So it, what, what you need is you need to go into the Lord's presence with empty hands and say, Lord, please stir me, re- revive me, and open His Word up and start reading and, and ask for the Lord to work. And then the Lord will begin, almost like a little trickling of water, you'll start sensing it. Like you start, your heart starts feeling something toward the Lord and your heart starts being moved by the Lord's goodness, His grace, His holiness, His beauty, His patience. And you just go, I cannot believe how patient you've been with me, how patient you are with this world, this sin-soaked world, and, and you're, you're moved by the goodness of God, the glory of God. And over time, what happens? Your heart begins to, to, to be softened, and there's a, there's a joy that starts to rise up, and there's, there's, there's water for a thirsty heart, and there's bread for a weary soul, and suddenly, what happens? You, you, you've got patience starts to come back. It's not just a choice where you just have to grit your teeth. It's a real patience starts coming from, from the Holy Spirit and, a, and a, a desire for kindness and goodness and love and truthfulness. And, and that's what we, we need, that strengthening by God's grace uh, every, every day. Um, I like what you were saying, Scott, about when it was it Ferguson swim in the sea of God's grace. Like when you think of that, <clears throat> think about the sheer amount of water in the sea. Um, I'm drawing, and I, I can't remember the specific quote from John Owen, but he was talking about, it was in his book on the glory of Christ, he talked about there is a, a treasury that we have in Christ. Um, and it, it's a treasury that is of infinite size, of infinite value. So you, you wonder at the end of the day, um, does Christ have enough grace for me? And the answer is he has more than enough grace. That's why I like the image of the sea. It's like, you know, you, you, you can take as many handfuls as you need or any buckets from the ocean and you're really not depleting the ocean at all, but you've got everything you can need and even more there for you. And so you think of, will Christ have enough for me? I know it seems like he's got enough for, for some of these super Christians who, you know, always seem to preach the gospel, always seem to know scripture. Does he have enough for me? Yes, he has more than enough grace and strength and help for you. It was... Um, Lamentations 3, where it talks about the, the, the mercies of God are new every morning. I'll never forget, John Piper talked about, it's like mercies for every day. It's not like you, 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 you know, I've got mercy tomorrow. Maybe I can borrow tomorrow's mercy for today because I feel like I need more today. No, God has enough for you today. Don't worry about tomorrow. He'll have enough for you tomorrow. So every day God has enough for you and more than enough for you. So even when you feel like you are utterly exhausted at the end of your rope, at the end of your resources God still has an infinite amount of resources mm-hmm. to help you and strengthen you. So preach this, that there is in, when he says, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ, there, there is a, a real ocean that is inexhaustible. And Jesus says, it is here for you, um, and I will give you what you need. I, I, that is so good. And I just reminded of a, of a Spurgeon story. I think, I may be wrong, maybe he was walking, but I think he was in a horse John carriage, if I remember correctly. But he was coming home from preaching, and you know, he had this is one of the first mega churches. I think it was like 6,000 people with no microphone and no air conditioning. So think about that. And uh, he, he comes home from preaching that night, and he said he was exhausted. And he, he was thinking of how busy his week was. And if you know Spurgeon, he did the work of five men in one lifetime. It's just, it's unimaginable the amount of material and work that he did. So he said he was thinking about the week coming up, and he said there was so many deadlines and meetings and pastors. He had to meet with the young pastors and finish books and publish his sermon. He said he was overwhelmed by the, the week in front of him. He said, I felt weary in my carriage going home. And then just like you said, Greg, he said, the verse that came to my mind was, my grace is sufficient for you. I guess it was King James. My grace is sufficient for thee. That's what it was. And he said, he said I started laughing out loud in my carriage. He said, I was laughing out loud because he said, he said, the two words that stood out to me was, my grace is sufficient for you. And he said, how, and it's like you just said, like the ocean compared to my bucket. Like he said, yeah, I think God does have enough grace for me. I think, I think he can take care of me. God has infinite resources. And here I am, this, this little man here riding, riding home. The Lord can lavish me with his grace and restore my heart. And he said, the Lord in that moment brought laughter because he thought the Lord has plenty of grace to get me through this next week. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about verse two, I mean, that's fantastic stuff, what y'all are saying. I'll just read verse two again. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach Others also, Alistair Beck said, whatever you're doing, you better be sure that the next crop of Timothy's is emerging right now. And he had, he talked about the kids at his church and they were building this thing, but that was moving to me thinking about all the kids at our church where really all of us should have a part in entrusting this gospel to them, like getting the gospel to them. I'm, I'm so thankful for the church I grew up in and just thinking about the different people. I wasn't even a Christian, but thinking about how they love Jesus and they love me. And then they, they pointed me to, they taught me things without maybe them even realizing and people staying steadfast, trusting God, losing 
the, the lady who lost her husband, like, when, and she was pregnant with her fifth child, and just she trusted God, like, stuff like that. We should just be thinking about those kids and all of us having a part in entrusting this, this gospel message because we need that, the, the rising generation that they will pass on, and even praying for them that they would come to faith, too, is just an important part of this. Okay, with all that said, we're going to move into these three powerful brief illustrations that Paul gives the good soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And just to put these in context, like has been said, Timothy, you've, you've, been, you've received the gospel, you need to guard it, and you need to give it to other people, and this process is going to involve a lot of hard work. And he gives three illustrations to support this job that he's given Timothy and that we also have in, in a similar way. So, let's just read these here. I'll read again verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I can jump in on the first, the first one there. Uh, verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I mean, this is, just these three are, are worth soaking in, I think. Mark, you and I were talking about this the week. It's just, I've just rushed through this so often in reading this and never really thought about these three analogies. But this is powerful to think about these three. But the soldier... Think about the soldier. What is the soldier? The soldier is like single-minded in his, in his devotion. He's, he's seeking to please the one who enlisted him. And Alistair Begg told this story about his dad. He's from Scotland. His dad was from Scotland. It's World War II. His dad got called up to serve in the army uh, in Scotland. And he was sent off to Glasgow where the barracks were at that time. And so he was there and he went through training and they gave him a uniform at the end of this thing. And uh, I guess at the end of the day, he was trying to leave the barracks. And uh, a sergeant saw him and said, soldier, where are you going? And he said, well, it's five o'clock. I'm heading home to get my tea. And the sergeant said, no, no soldier. No, you're not. Uh, you're, you're wearing a uniform now. You cannot do that. Get back inside the barracks. You know, get back in there now. Like he thought he could put on the uniform and do whatever he wanted. No. Once you put on the uniform, no, you have to please the one who's enlisted. You can't just do whatever you want. Well, in the same sense, we should have a single-minded devotion to Christ. Christ is the one who's enlisted us. So we're soldiers for Christ, but I've just been powerful thinking about that. Christ has intervened in my life. He's intervened in our lives. Like he has shed his blood for me. He has died in my place. He, I am covered by the blood of Jesus. Like he, he shed his blood for me. Uh, so we've been bought with a price. Spurgeon says that, that that's the most important thing about our biography. If we're a Christian, we have been bought with a price. So Jesus has, has bought us with a price. And so now I cannot live the same way now that I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, I cannot keep living the same way that I was once living. No, I have to live totally different. I have to have a single-minded focus on Jesus. I want to please the one who has enlisted me. I want to honor the one who has died in my place. So I'm just thinking about that. We should have this single-minded devotion. One, one guy said, one of the th it means you don't get entangled in civilian uh, pursuits. Is that what it says there mm -hmm. in verse 4? No, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So there, that's application for us. We can't keep getting entangled with things. There's, there's so many things that will entangle us in this world that can trip us up. And one guy just said, it means that we shouldn't waste time. He said, limit the time you spend on entertainment, hobbies, and other outside interests. Now, I know God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, First Timothy 6, but there's so many things that we can overdo it and they can entangle us. We were talking about YouTube the other night with our guys' book club, and YouTube is a wonderful gift. It's, we're live streaming right now. It's amazing. But YouTube can be something that can entangle us so we can just go down the rabbit trail. It's like the vortex. It sucks us into this thing. <laughs> oh, I want to watch this. Like Grant Crane was talking about, the, it's designed to know, know what you like next. Like, <laughs> click on this thing, and you click on this. And all of a sudden, your spiritual vitality is zapped. So I just feel like there's things that we could probably, we need to be pushed by this, this soldier analogy. There may be things that we need to maybe cut out because we want to please the one who's enlisted us. I think it was Piper talked about we need to have a wartime mentality. Mm -hmm. um, he, he had a statement, and it's just in reference to prayer, um, but he talked about this wartime mentality that, that we need to have, and most Christians, like, we, we are lulled to sleep by all the stuff around us, the, especially with social media. Now, when he said this statement, social media was not a thing, I don't think, um, but even more true today, and it, it's specifically in relation to prayer, he said, until we know that life is war, we cannot know what prayer is for. And there's a lot of, of truth in that. 
that if we don't understand, and, and taking the soldier metaphor, and I mean, literally, we are in a spiritual battle. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. You know, we are engaged daily in spiritual warfare until we understand that every single day we are engaged in a war uh, for the glory of Christ, for our own souls, for the souls of people around us. Until we get that, we're really not going to get the purpose of prayer either. Mm-hmm. Because what is prayer? It's like, as, as he said, it's like a walkie-talkie. You keep in touch with the commander. You get your orders. You call in reinforcements and, and all of that. And it's like we don't live, especially in America, in a wartime mentality. We, we think war is what happens in other places, but not here. And I think... Um, and I, I'm gonna, I can't remember, I've heard several people talk about this, but it's like where, um, where it seems like it's Satan, when, um, where it seems like he's not putting much emphasis, sometimes that's where it's actually his greatest emphasis. Where he seems most quiet is actually where he's working the hardest. And so in a land like where we live with, you know, blessed beyond measure materially, and we say, oh, well, you know, things are good. We don't have to worry. No, we really need to worry then. If everything seems to be going well, that's when we need to be most careful because that's when we are most vulnerable. And I think that's why this metaphor, especially of the soldier, is so powerful. A soldier is always ready to go to battle. He is, he is ready the moment that call comes. And he's not just waiting for a call. He's alert with his eyes. He's alert with his senses because if, my, if it happens, I'm going to be expecting my commander to call. I'm not just going to be waiting around doing nothing. I'm going to keep in shape. I'm going to keep strong. I'm going to drill. I'm going to train so that I'm, I'm constantly looking and I'm ready. And so one of the things I think we, we need a radical, and I use that term hopefully in the right way, um, a radical mind shift in is realizing that every day we are in a spiritual battle. And unfortunately, we don't get a day off. There, there's no days off in this. We're used to having our weekends or vacations. We can take a break from work, take a break from the norm. When it comes to a spiritual battle, we can't take a day off. Why? Because Satan doesn't take a day off. Every day he is working to destroy us and weaken the testimony of the church to the gospel. And so we need a wartime mentality. Uh, that's, I mean, we all know this illustration. We talk about it a lot, but how does, the, how does the verse begin? You know, in the spring when the kings go off to war, do you know where that goes? David stayed home and was walking on the roof of his palace. So this is that moment, right? He's not, no longer David is not having the wartime mentality. He's just sort of taking this break. He's kind of being casual. He's not really trying that hard. He looks over the roof, sees Bathsheba bathing, and then look what happens. I mean, just the the consequences of that go on for centuries uh, after that's over. So uh, the the mentality needs to be with us uh, at all times. We could go on about that, but let's move to the athlete, verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Yeah, I think you use the phrase costly discipline when you, when you think about uh, an athlete. Uh, and it might just reminded me of like guys like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, these guys that were fanatical uh, in their discipline in order just to win in, in basketball. Michael Phelps, I think you've talked about Michael Phelps who won all these gold medals. Like he was in the pool how many hours every day eating all these meals, had all these, he needed to get all these calories or whatever and like just working, working, working. And it's, it's convicting when you study a guy like Michael Jordan who was just so fanatical about winning and he was like the, the Pistons kept beating him. If, if you know Michael Jordan's history and like he would work out all summer to get stronger and bulkier so he could compete with these guys who were roughing him up. So he got all muscular in order to, to beat the Pistons. But then uh, in the documentary, he's won like five championships in a row and it starts the very next season. And there's a video with him. He goes in there, he's in the gym alone and he's shooting free throws. And I just thought, this is classic. Like he's just, he's going back to the fundamentals. And I just thought the costly discipline, just the discipline for us to, to uh, go to the word, just to, to build these, these uh, habits of grace in us. We, this, we should just be, uh, so disciplined, uh, like, a, like an athlete like that. And uh, if they can do that for a sport, how much more should we be doing spiritual disciplines like the word, like prayer, memorizing the word, fellowship, all these things? It should, it should be, again, we should be pushed by this. No, nobody walks in the room when Michael Jordan is up at five in the morning taking free throw shots and says, oh, he's a legalist, right? But someone's up at five o'clock with their Bible. Oh, you must be slipping into some legalism. Well, I mean, it's possible, but uh, I don't think that's our main problem. I think our main problem is we just don't want to open our Bible as much as we need to. So it's like when, 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 a, when, a, when a secular athlete working for a perishable wreath, right, as Paul would say, when they put us to shame, I think Paul would say we need to step up our game. Not, not again, not to look better than them. That's not the point. It's not a competition in that sense. But when, when secular athletes are... are what they eat is completely controlled by winning. How much they work out is completely controlled by winning. Everything in their life is calculated for years and decades to make sure they're the best they can possibly be to win the most games they can possibly win. 
And we res- there's, a, there's a kind of real respect we should have for that in a sense, but we as believers have an imperishable wreath. There are people who are, it's not about winning a game, it's about winning genuine people for eternity. There should be a kind of real discipline that's not called legalism, a kind of, I love you so much, I'm going to care enough to study my Bible and pray for you and to reach out to you and talk to you and call you because I actually care about you. And, and when a secular athlete puts me to shame, which just happens all the time when you compare the two. Uh, I think Paul would say that's a, that should be an encouragement to step up and say, well, let, let's, let's not let that, uh, let, let's not let that be true uh, anymore. Mm-hmm. Shall we look at the farmer? Yeah. Um, think, look at verse 6. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Um, Kevin DeYoung was talking about this. Um, he, uh, in his first pastorate, he was in a more rural church, had a lot of farmers, and, you know, I, being around some of the people I've been around, I can confirm this, just my own experience. It's like, you know, you'll learn a lot of things about farmers, but one thing you'll never find is a lazy farmer. <laughs> um, if you have a lazy farmer, you don't have a farmer because he doesn't have a farm and he doesn't have anything to grow or anything to harvest. Um, farmers are by nature hardworking. Um, growing a field of crops is not an easy business. Um, it requires a lot of dedication, and it requires a patient dedication over a long period of time. And so that's why Paul says, you know, the hardworking farmer is one of the ways we need to think about how we need to work for Christ. Um, the Christian life is not easy. It takes effort. Um, and again, that's why we need that, that treasury of grace that we looked at in verse 1, because you know, we start to think sometimes of how hard it is to walk with Christ, and we should despair of our own ability to do it. But Christ has grace and strength for the hard work. Like, that's the amazing thing. There's nothing that He calls us to that He won't give us the strength to do it. He doesn't ever leave us to ourselves. And so if we're looking at this and we think, man, that, that's almost too much. Why would I want to want to do that. Well, you've got the Lord of the universe who not only paid for your sin, but then conquered death is coming back one day. It's going to set up an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. He says, I'm going to give you the strength to do this thing that you don't think you can do. Mm -hmm. So it's never too much for us because it's never too much for him. That's good. And uh, just why are we doing this? Just real quick, going back to those last illustrations. Number one, one day we get to... Get to please the one who enlisted us. Again, this is very important. It is not legalism to say Christians can please or displease God. That is not legalism. When David committed adultery, the thing that David did, quote, displeased the Lord, right? That's displeasing the Lord. As a believer, you can displease the Lord, you can please the Lord. It's not about earning your salvation, but you can really please and displease. Illustration. There's nothing my children could do that would make me love them less, but they can please and displease me. Those are not contradictory things. My, my children can please and displease me by how they act, but they're never going to get less of my love. And similarly with God, we're, we're not going to, His love for us doesn't go up and down on whether we had a quiet time today, but He really can be pleased and displeased by our actions. And so, number one, we get to, according to the, the good soldier, we get to please the one who enlisted us, which means ultimately one day we get to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. There is no price tag you can put on that. One day the Lord looks at you in the, in the eyes and says, well done. So that is something to live for. Number two, we will receive a crown, not like the athlete, the perishable crown. Paul will, in 1 Corinthians, call it an imperishable crown that will never go away. This, this incredible eternal reward from the Lord and finally, we get to share in the fruitfulness of the work of ministry. The, the, the farmer gets to have the first share of the crop, and we get to share in the fruitfulness of what the Lord does through us in our midst, and we get to have the joy of, of delighting in and, and seeing that and, and having a part in that. So moving on, yes. trying to get to uh, <laughs> verse 13 if we can. I'm going to make one comment about verse 7. Yes. I wish we could linger here for, we, we could linger on verse 7 for a really long time. But notice what Paul says. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. God revealing truth and illuminating us to truth is not opposed to our thinking deeply and hardly on things. Like we need to think deep. We need to think hard. We need to think rigorously. um, And it's through that that God gives the understanding. It's not apart from our thinking. It's through our thinking, our meditating, our wrestling with, with the text. Um, of Scripture and with what God has revealed here. Like I said, we could say a whole lot more of that, but God, knowing God is the one who gives the understanding, 
is not opposed to us thinking and dwelling on what he said. It's through that effort that God brings understanding. And let me just say there, that means Paul is admitting that 2 Timothy takes thinking. You don't just breeze through it. No, I've read 2 Timothy. I know it. No, no, no. Paul says, you, you've got to stop, Timothy, and you need to meditate over these analogies, these illustrations. Think about them. It's almost like you're trying to get all the juice out as you, as, that you possibly can, wringing it out with all the truth and all the insight that's there. And verses 8 through 10, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the Word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I just find it amazing that he says, remember Jesus. Like, is Timothy in danger of forgetting? What, what, what do you mean? Well, he's saying, listen, every day, every hour, we have to remember Jesus. Spurgeon said, you know, we may go a few hours without praying. We may, we may forget about the Lord for a period of time, but He has not forgotten about us. But we, we are called to remember Jesus who? The Christ. He's the one that died and rose again. He's the true son of David. And He's the one that is preached in Paul's gospel, which is worthy of suffering uh, bound as chains as a criminal. Um, I think it's, it's important to remember that, you know, Paul never lost sight to the fact that he's suffering because of the gospel um, but there's a, there's a tweak on that. And I get it from Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. Um, yes, earthly, earthly governments and people may persecute us. They may throw you in prison for the gospel. But you're first Christ's prisoner. Meaning you are only where you are because Christ has placed you there. Okay? So if you find yourself in prison for the gospel, it's not an accident. It's not, you know, somehow God's plan has been short-circuited or it's been, you know, it's, it's veered off course into a ditch. No, you're right where you're supposed to be. We've mentioned this before. In the culture we live in, we, we tend to think that if, if I'm doing, if things are going well, then that means God's pleased. And if I'm suffering and things are going hard, God's displeased. And maybe I did something wrong and I got to try to search out, you know, where, where did I go wrong? I've been trying to do right, but maybe somewhere along the way I misstep and God's holding that against me. Um, no, Paul is where he is because he was being faithful. And suffering often is the result of faithfulness to Christ. We first belong to Jesus, and he permits whatever may take place to us from human people who oppose us. Don't forget that. But I think we need to keep going. Or did you have something to say? Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I mean, just in that command about remembering Jesus, uh, like somebody says, it would be astonishing. Could Timothy really forget Jesus? Well, the, the mind is so fickle. I think John Stott said we can. Like, we can so easily drift from it. So I think we all need to remember Jesus. I thought about Hebrews 12, about we're running with endurance, we're looking to Jesus. And I, you use that illustration when we went to Hebrews 12 about the walk-off home run in baseball, where we're surrounded by this great crowd of witnesses, but there was a guy who took pictures of walk-off home runs, and it would be down the third baseline. The guys Explain what a walk-off home run is. Walk-off home run would be the home team would be up uh, either in the bottom of the ninth or in extra innings, and they hit a home run to win the game as a walk-off home run. So it's one of the most exciting things that can happen in baseball is a walk-off hit or walk-off home run. You can't get better than that. Walk-off home run. So a walk-off home run, this guy takes pictures of walk-off home runs where the guy is circling third, and maybe he's throwing his helmet up there, and the whole team is, is around home plate. I've never forgotten that when you shared that because that's sort of we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, but ultimately we're running to see Jesus. I mean, it's moving to think about that. We're running home to see Jesus. Like, we're running the bases. It may be difficult in this Christian life running around, but at the end of the day, we're running home to see Jesus, who shed his blood for me. I'm going to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servants. That, that's motivation to run the bases. So we just need to constantly remember Jesus. I think it was Tony Ranke who said, uh, we need to, to feed on the food of first importance, which is Christ and him crucified. I mean, just again and again, we've got to chew on Christ and him crucified. It motivates us out to, to run. Well, we are just about out of time. Maybe we could include this next week, do you think, to start? Yeah, we, we can start off. There's just a lot to cover. Verses 11 through 13. I think we're going to stop right here, and we'll, we'll pick up at, at verse 10 for next week and try to finish chapter 2 uh, next Thursday. Uh, Scott, can you pray for us, and then sure. we'll, we'll finish up here. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time to gather and to, to have this pizza and, and, and other food that we, you've supplied for us. And uh, thank you for all those who've helped setting all this up. And just thank you for this wonderful time. Thank you for this wonderful letter uh, of Second Timothy. I, I pray that we would be faithful to just chew on it some more and to think on it. It is a challenging 
letter, especially the, the section that we looked at tonight, but I pray that we would remember uh, the, the, the opening of, of chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is power, not just pardon. Father, I pray that we would turn to you regularly, consistently for enabling grace, and that we would go forth in, in the strength that you supply, and that we would give thanks to you when you do enable us. And I pray that we would remember Jesus Christ uh, risen from the dead. I just pray that we would chew regularly on the food of first importance, Christ and him crucified. We're pr- so prone to forget the gospel, but I pray that we would be faithful to, to, to chew on the, the grace of God in Christ. And Father, help us to be challenged by these analogies uh, of the soldier. Father, you have enlisted us in Christ's army. Christ has shed his blood for us. We, we cannot live the same as we once lived. So help us to have single-minded devotion uh, to, to Christ. And uh, may we be more diligent uh, like the athlete, more disciplined with our time, and may we be hardworking uh, like the farmer. And help us to do all of this by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And uh, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And uh, I believe next week, uh, Alan's going to be helping us cook hamburgers and hot dogs for the meal next week. Is that correct? Yeah. So next week, uh, Alan should be helping us out with hamburgers and hot dogs. So come ready for that and uh, hopefully see you all then.